If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In just a few moments, I'm going to read from verse 27 through 32. As we continue in a series we started last week called The Elevated Life, a series focusing on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And as you're finding Matthew chapter 5, I want to tell you a little story. You know, Jesus in his earthly ministry told stories, and those stories are often what we remember most. And so I want to share a little story with you uh, this morning. Many years ago, in a very remote village, deep in the Amazon rainforest, lived a primal tribe. The tribe, while small in number, were well established in and around the Amazon River Basin. They were a tribe with a culture and a language and a history, though never written, though probably never known, to the modern world. The river had provided for generations their livelihood. They used it for transportation. They used it for food. They used it for a little of their trade, even with other remote tribes. But there was also a danger lurking in the river. Over the years, Various tribe members had been lost to the danger lurking in the water. A fair number of tribe members had been out and had not returned. And while the elders of the tribe knew what was going on, they chose never to speak about the danger in the water. They never spoke about it in their gatherings. They never spoke about it as they were sending out warriors and fishermen. They never especially spoke about it to their children. They chose to keep quiet because the lurking danger to ever speak about it was taboo. It was forbidden. It was off limits in their culture. And so slowly but surely, more and more of the tribe was lost to the lurking danger. And as the years continued, the silence continued. And year and year, more and more, men, women, and children would be taken but what lurked under the water. Now you might be asking, what was it? What was the danger? What was the, the fear Well, the point of the parable is not to point out that there were alligators in the water. There certainly was a danger lurking in the water, but the point of the parable is not to mention the animal that was preying on the tribe. It's to mention that the tribe would not speak about the danger. And there are certainly things in our world and in our time that we don't talk about that we avoid at all cost. Subjects that are forbidden or even taboo to talk about. And certainly in a Christian circle or even a conservative Christian church, the list of those things that are unspeakable, 
relatable. We don't talk about gets longer and longer and longer. Because we're afraid of one of two things. We're afraid if we talk about these taboo subjects, well, then we're going to encourage everybody to go try them out. Even though that's really never what happens. Or secondly, we're afraid that when we talk about them, we will offend people who have been harmed by them in the past. And so we choose not to speak. We choose to avoid. We choose to be silent. Well, Jesus wasn't that way. Aren't you glad? Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 speaks about tabooed subjects, especially tabooed subjects in his time that are still taboo subjects in our time. He points out in the Sermon on the Mount warnings and dangers about the subjects of lust, adultery, and divorce. And this morning... I'm going to allow Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our teacher, to guide us and to warn us and to point to the subject matters that we sometimes avoid in the areas of lust, adultery, and divorce. Because even as these words are difficult to hear, friends, let me tell you, there is a lurking danger. There is a cautionary tale that when we choose to avoid that which we're uncomfortable speaking about, we then prompt more and more of our people to be taken by the dangers that live under the water. So I'm going to share what Jesus shares today. And I would invite you with open hearts and open minds, with the desire to be taught by Jesus, to let him speak to us. And I just want to alert any parents in the room, this will be by all means a PG message. There won't be anything that seems a little out of line. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew chapter 20, or 5, verse 27 through 32. Now, for the audience of that day, just like the audience now, these were striking words. It was a striking subject matter. Jesus is going to recast one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. He's going to over-exaggerate in this image of plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand. And then he's going to capture something about the civic relationships of husband and wife 
in the marriage union there in their time. He's going to be very open and very frank about very real issues. Issues of temptation, issues of desire, issues of infidelity, issues of abandonment. Is it possible that Jesus was speaking to an audience then that was having a series of problems, a series of issues, but isn't it possible that all of those issues don't exist today? Do you think any of those issues still have any relevance today? Of course they do. But he wanted them to think about kingdom, God's kingdom. Remember, the whole Sermon on the Mount is about God's kingdom and about what God's kingdom people do and how God's kingdom people think. And so he wanted to reframe these issues of their day in light of God's kingdom. Therefore, no matter what age, no matter what era, no matter what period of time, these teachings of Jesus are applicable. And they are certainly applicable today. But more than anything, he wants to tell us about the lurking dangers under the water. He doesn't want to hide from the subjects that certainly capture many. So let me do this. And I can already tell, man, oh, we are in for a wild 20 minutes. Uh, you guys are looking at me like I thought you would look at me. So let's just cut a little bit of tension with a little bit of levity and humor. Are we going to be okay for the next 20 minutes? I hope so. And if you have any problems, uh, remember, I am on temporary loan from Campbellsville University. You can cut me off at any point and it's a-okay. Let's start with what Jesus says about lust, an unspoken truth about lust. Verse 27, let's just, let's just hear it. He says to the audience, you have heard it said, or you know it to be true, that you should not commit adultery. Jesus is taking one of the Ten Commandments that they all knew, all were aware of, and he is going to recast it in the light of God's kingdom. Just as he did with you shall not murder, he is now going to recast you shall not commit adultery. And so therefore, in verse 28, this is the recasting or the reconfirming what it means for God's people in God's kingdom. He says, but I say to you, but my word to you is that everyone, every single one who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that seems completely contrary to what we believe. We believe the act of adultery is an act. It's a behavior. It's an action that has actually taken place. We wouldn't categorize something before that action takes place as being sinful. But Jesus wants to recast the command. It's not just the final act or the ending act, but it can include the steps that lead up to it. That, when we look with a lustful intent, when we look with a desire for more, when we look to turn the person into an object that we must possess or that we must have or that must be conquered, then we have stepped into a new category. It's a committing of adultery in our hearts. Now, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. A passing glance is not sinful. Even a recognition of beauty is not sinful. I mean, some of that can actually not be avoided. We have these two things called eyeballs in our eyes, and whether they're good or bad, we see things whether we have choice in it or not. 
And actually, uh, several years ago, I, our family was traveling out west. I know every one of my stories start about traveling out west to a national park, but this one applies as well. We flew out of Louisville. Y'all think I only tell stories about traveling, and I certainly tell a lot of them, but this was, this was true. Our boys were just uh, 13 and 14, 13 and 15, just teenagers, and we were flying in and out of uh, Las Vegas, and because of some travel changes, when we flew in, we just literally flew in, got a rental car, and went to the Grand Canyon. That was nice and safe. But on the way back, we actually had some trouble, and so we had to be in Las Vegas for a couple days. And you know, when you got teenagers in Las Vegas, particularly teenage boys, you need to teach them some things about what they're going to see in Las Vegas. And so I tried with my two teenage sons to equip them with the technique that my father had taught me called the bounce. That was simply this. When your eyes land on something and it's something rather revealing, something rather interesting, if you get my drift, you got to bounce. Your eyes got to go someplace else. You know, you might hit it, but you got to move away. And so you have, you know, you look up or you look down or you look to the right or to the left. Your eyes bounce. You don't linger. You don't hang out there. You don't stay longer than a millisecond. You see, okay, my mind, and you move. You bounce. And I remember our boys, you know, they were just a little bit younger, and they would be walking down the streets. And in Las Vegas, man, it's not just real humans. I mean, you see billboards, and you see signage, and there's flyers and leaflets on the ground. And my sons were like this. <laughs> just like they had some sort of neck problems. <laughs> Because, man, they're bouncing. They're everywhere. In the hotel, we're bouncing. In the airport, we're bouncing. Definitely at the pool on that afternoon, our eyes are bouncing. And so was dad's. You know, there is some technique to it. There is some recognition. It's when you come back for look two and three and four. And when those looks have been transmitted into plans and actions and desires and hopes. It's when your line of sight becomes something far more that Jesus is saying you're stepping into the danger zone. You're stepping into the lurking water of dangers you have no belief and no knowledge of because the unspoken truth that Jesus knew that we should know is that lust grows. It grows. James chapter 1 verse 15 describes this in which James writes, then after lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I grew up in youth group learning that verse as LSD, not the drug, but lust, sin, death. There's a pattern. It's a progression. It's a step further and further and further. And lust is the beginning step. It's a starting point. And if you allow it to grow and you allow it to fester and you allow it to expand, it proves and produces more and more. I mean, that's why Jesus in his sermon goes into the exaggeration mode in this idea in verse 29 and 30. Okay, therefore, if your right eye causes you to sin, if that look has become a little further and a little further and a little further into a desire and a wish, pull it out. Now, he's not literally meaning to take some eyes out of the eye sockets. That's not what he's saying. 
He's using exaggeration to get them to possibly do what I just did with you, laugh a bit, feel a little levity in a moment because they know they're all battling. They've all battled with this issue of lust. And so Jesus says, man, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off, throw it out. He's using exaggeration to show them that there is a severity that when we leave lust unchecked, undealt with, there can be consequences further down the road. Well, that's not the only forbidden subject Jesus speaks about. He goes a little further in speaking about adultery. Now, the unspoken truth about adultery is that there are these thoughts and lustful desires in our mind, but it certainly can manifest it into an action or a pattern and behavior. And I would define adultery a little differently maybe than you might. I would define adultery as any physical or emotional or intimate relationship with anyone other than your spouse. And I'm including emotional to describe in a relationship that while it hasn't expressed itself physically, it's, it's definitely beyond the covenant union of one man, one woman for one lifetime that God has designed. And actually in our day and time, there is some evidence that you might find shocking. I know I do. Just a couple of years ago, the National Association of Marriage and Family Therapists reported in the New York Times that 25% of married men, one out of four, and 15% of married women have been involved in an extramarital relationship. But that number increases by 20% for both groups, up to 45% for men and 35% for women when you include an emotional extramarital relationship that while it hasn't expressed itself physically, it's in the it's in the zone to go that direction. And they had found that while Christian marriages are not a subset of that study, Christian marriages, believing followers of Jesus inside of that, were no different than any other subset. That some 45% of men, 35% of women have had some physical, emotional, or intimate relationship with someone other than they're married with. And the unspoken truth about adultery is that it is completely avoidable if you start early enough to protect that which you have committed to. I mean, inside the beauty of God's covenant relationship called marriage, inside the beauty of that union of two becoming one, inside of this thing that God designed in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter two, to be part of a display of his glory and a display of his goodness that Paul describes in the book of Ephesians as a model of Christ in the church. This thing that God designed as good and right for the production of future humans and for the relationship in an bond that is unbreakable, this thing that God has designed called marriage is on often the pathway to destruction because folks don't start early enough protecting that which God has created. Adultery is completely avoidable. 
Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. In a group to a church that was absolutely rampant with all kinds of relationship weirdo stuff, some of it with family members, some of it with married people and single people, some of it even in a religious context, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it, run from it, get away from it. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sexually sins against their own body. Now that's the end product. But there's also a series of steps way before it gets to that stage. In the Proverbs, in Proverbs 6, mentions the steps before where the wisdom writer says, Can a man carry a fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on coals and his feet not be scorched? He who commits adultery lacks sense. And he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. And can someone be forgiven for the sin of adultery? Absolutely. Can a marriage be restored and renewed even when adultery has taken place? Absolutely. There may be people that you know or maybe even folks right here in our faith family that have gone through the destructive situation of adultery and yet God restored mightily a covenant and a union. But I want us to be honest about the lurking danger. Adultery is completely avoidable if you go further and further up the line to put things in place that will protect the relationship, that will protect the union. And I want to mention just a few of these to you. And, and I'm not any marriage expert. I'm not a, a person that's got a perfect track record. I'm thankful to God that my wife and I have been married 20 plus years. I'm praying to God that he will keep our marriage strong and keep our marriage safe. But some of the strategies I'm gonna share with you right now is not because I think our marriage is perfect, but it's because I think if I don't put these in place and keep them active, our marriage is just as susceptible as anybody else's. And so I'm gonna... Think carefully about the danger. Just as I lock the doors of my house every night before I go to bed and lock the car when I leave it, I'm going to lock up some strategies to keep my marriage safe if God would give me such strength. One of the techniques that I would mention to you, it's something that we learned at a conference, is that you must give complete access and complete transparency to everything digital in your life. Studies have found this right here is now the leading cause of relationships reforming that have once gone dormant and secrets being formed inside the marriage. Because there is a feeling that you can do a message on social media or send a little email or begin a little text message or even in the Snapchat that supposedly is invisible and deletes itself. That you can have some photos of here in a hidden folder and no one will ever, ever know. It's the beginning. It's the fomenting of a relationship that search first is digital, but then it finds its way physical. So my wife has access to my phone at any time and any moment 
for any reason, she can scroll, she can look, she can access, she can log in to anything at any time without any questions, without any concern. It's hers for the looking. Good luck. You're going to find a bunch of school stuff in there. But the fact that I know she can look at any time, any moment, any reason is a protection. It's not because I'm afraid of the trust or afraid of being transparent. Actually, if I know my wife can view every single thing I've ever done digitally, every single thing I've ever done on my phone, will it make me think second about an activity that might be an indiscretion? She can log into my laptop anytime she wants. She can log into my email anytime she wants. She can go into anything. And it's beautifully shared. I can do the exact same thing for her phone. Now, in 20 plus years, we've not had to go through a scenario where we're scrolling in each other's quote unquote private lives looking for evidence. But there's probably a reason we haven't had that experience. It's because there's open transparency to all things private, so-called, in a marriage. If you have committed your life to one person for this thing called marriage, isn't it a complete open transparent book that you have no more secrets, no more hidden places. You just say, if you want to take a look, you are free to go. But many, many marriages have not utilized that kind of transparency. Another strategy, and I'm just going to mention too, another strategy is about keeping proper distance. Uh, 20 plus years... I've been married, and even before that, while engaged and in a courtship, particularly because I was in youth ministry and in a ministry at all parts, I don't get in cars with women alone. I don't have lunch and coffee meetings with women alone. I don't have counseling sessions with a door closed and someone not knowing exactly where I am, what I'm doing, what's going on. I've, I work in an industry where often we have to travel. We have scenarios where there have been times where the university wanted me to travel with a team member who happened to be a female and it was just going to be the two of us traveling to another city, staying in a hotel, going to a conference, doing a workshop, and I just won't do it. If there's not three, it's not me. If there's not a third person, whether another female or another male employee, team member, I won't do it. And it has put me in some weird situations. Why won't you just drive down to the next campus with your colleague in the car? Nope, they got to drive and I got to drive because I don't ride in cars with people who aren't my wife, especially another married woman or another colleague. I just won't do it. I mean, Actually, right now, and, and I'm not trying to make this overly political, but, you know, there is a lot of hate toward former Vice President Mike Pence because he had a rule about never being in a room alone with a married woman. And he took a lot of hate, especially in the media. But he learned that from the Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. And no one's going to say a word about Dr. Graham. I mean, he's just second to Jesus, right? It's Jesus and Billy. But why would they put those things in their lives? Why would they put those strategies in their, in their day-to-day practices? It's not because they're afraid they're going to make a mistake or they're afraid they're going to break their covenant vow, but they're putting all the safeguards way up the line to protect that what God has created. 
Uh, Friends, there is nothing wrong with saying I am susceptible or I have a struggle or I am tempted or I have a weak point. And so what you do when you know there is a lurking danger, you get up the hill with the strategies and the techniques to protect that which God has created. And you value it and you protect it. Because the opposite can be true. Just as I can name Mike Pence and Billy Graham, without even thinking, just this morning on my way over, I was thinking of three, maybe four prominent Christian leaders, folks that you have read their books and you have probably heard their sermons and you've probably seen them on television shows who within the last 12 months have lost their places of leadership in ministry and influence because they had an inappropriate relationship with someone other than their wife. Now, none of those relationships, to our knowledge, were physical, intimate relationships, but they were all wrong and inappropriate because they didn't go far up the line. They let a direct messaging or they let a text message thread or they let some emails pass back and forth or some photos that resulted in them being completely discredited and removed from places of influence. They didn't go far enough up the hill to protect that which God had created. Friends, there's a lurking danger. When we don't talk about it, we don't confront it, and we don't do the things that we need to do to protect it, it can bite. If I can invite the praise van to come. I I know I wanted to speak on divorce, but I have four minutes, and I think that needs a little longer than what I can do this morning. So if you'll come back next week, or if you will not come back next week... (laughs) I will know why. We'll pick up on that topic next week. I want to end with this. This is a heavier message, but several years ago, I was serving on church staff uh, up in northern Kentucky. It was my first full-time church position. And in those days, we had a position in church called minister of education or minister of discipleship. That's what I was. I wasn't the lead pastor. So every Sunday morning, My job was to go visit all the different life groups, small groups, one by one. And so I had a rotation. We had about 40 or 50 small groups. And so I would visit the kids and the preschool and the students and the adults of every every shape. And one particular Sunday, I was scheduled to visit the old man's class. That was the actual title they put on their class. The old man's class. They had no shame in the fact that they were old dudes. Uh, I went in and I knew all of these gentlemen. And as the 26-year-old, now with the next youngest at 71. Yeah, old dudes, well descriptive of this class. Uh, And I'm in there and, you know, we're, we're having the normal thing. You know, old dudes, they talk a lot of jokes and what'd you do this week? And they're all retired. And so the answer was nothing. And, you know, they drink a lot of coffee and kind of, you know, jib jab about sports and whatever's going on. And finally, we got to the Bible study, the lesson part. And I heard the gentleman, and you're going to recognize how old he is by his name. His name was Oval Goad. We don't name boy children Oval anymore. But Mr. Oval was a dearest, dear saint. He opens up a passage And I immediately think, oh, no, you've got to be kidding me. Mr. Oval makes reference to a passage of the Bible that's all going to be about sexual temptation and lust. And I start getting red. 
I'm going to sit and listen to old dudes for the next 20 minutes talk about sexual temptation and lust in their lives. And, and I'm embarrassed, but they weren't. You know old dudes. They'll shoot straight. And for the next 20, 30 minutes, one by one, there's just five or six guys in this class Older men, I mean, probably the oldest was 88, 89. And so you had, you know, the young 71-year-old talking to the middle-aged 78-year-old and to the older, wiser 88-year-old about this thing that they were still battling as men, still fighting the good fight, still putting things in their lives to protect their eyes, protect their heart, to protect their marriages. Some of them had been married for 50 and 60 years and they're still fighting the good fight. And here I am, this 26-year-old who's only been married for probably a year at the time, and I'm hearing these wise old saints talk about they're still in the fight of their life. And it reminded me, this thing doesn't go away with age. But the wiser you get, the older you get, the longer you've walked with Jesus, the more serious you take it. Because there's a lurking danger. And there is a thing that attacks. And there's a thing that destroys. And well into their 70s and 80s, they were still doing what was necessary to protect that which God had created in their marriage. And let me tell you, I left that class, yes, a little red in the face but aware that this thing doesn't go away. And what you do to protect that which God has created isn't just for the first five years of your marriage or 10 years of your marriage or 40 years of your marriage. It's till death do us part. You protect that which God created. I'm cognizant a message on lust and adultery is not something that we often talk about in church. But aren't you glad that Jesus didn't skip the subject? Because we know it's certainly something that we fight until the very end. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? And just as we're entering into a time of response, I'm sensitive to the fact that folks probably aren't going to walk forward and say, I'm battling with an adulterous relationship. I'm battling with lustful feelings toward another. I recognize that that's sensitive. But in this spirit, in this moment, would you just speak to the Lord, not to me, not to your family members on the right or left. Would you just speak to the Lord and ask him to give you the strength and give you the endurance to protect that which he has created for the long haul? If you're single, not married, would you ask the Lord to protect that future relationship, if he so wills, that even in your single life, that you would be a person of purity and a person of, that's above reproach in your relationships. If you're married, I pray that you would speak to the Lord right now and ask God to strengthen and strategize and give you the tools and steps to protect this union that he has created for the, for the endurance of the marriage. And if you have stepped outside of that relationship with something that's physical or emotional, would you just come to the Lord right now with this heart of repentance and confession? It might even result in you needing to be honest and 
truthful with your spouse in the coming hours. So Lord, we come to you now with different places, different hearts, different things going on. I pray that we would lay everything before you as your spirit has guided us today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.